thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. So now we're going to finish up chapter 44, the Leland Manuscript. And I'm actually going to back up just a little bit so it's not so confusing as to where we left off. So I'm going to start again with those who defend the genuineness of the Leland Manuscript approve of these points. Point number one, the document was first printed at Frankfurt in Germany, whence it was copied into the Gentleman's Magazine for September 1753. Point number two, the original manuscript was, by command of King Henry VIII, copied by John Leland from an older document of the time of Henry VI. Point three, this original manuscript, of which Leland made the copy, was written by King Henry VI. Point four, the manuscript of Leland was placed in the Bodleian Library. Point five, a copy of this manuscript of Leland was made by a Mr. C, said to mean Collins, and given to John Locke. And point number six, Locke wrote notes on it in the year 1696, which were published in Frankfurt in 1748 and in England in 1753. Brother Mackey holds that the failure to establish by competent proof any one of these six points will seriously affect a belief in the whole story, for each of them is a link in one continuous chain. He submits the following. Now, number one, now as to the first point, that the document was first printed at Frankfurt in the year 1748. The Frankfurt copy has never yet been seen, notwithstanding diligent search has been made for it by German writers, who were the most capable of discovering it, if it had ever existed. The negative evidence is strong that the Frankfurt copy may be justly considered as a mere myth. It follows about the article in the Gentleman's Magazine is an original document, and we have a right to suppose that it was written at that time for some purpose to be hereafter considered, for as the author of it has given a false reference, we may conclude that if he had copied it at all, he would have furnished us with the true one. Kloss, it is true, has admitted the title into his catalog, but he has borrowed his description of it from the article in the Gentleman's Magazine, and speaks of this Frankfurt copy as being very doubtful. He evidently had never seen it, though he was a tireless searcher after Masonic books. Krauss's account of it is that it is, was first found worthy of Locke's notice in England, that thence it passed over into Germany, how, he does not know, appeared in Frankfurt, and then returned to England, where it was printed in 1753. But all this is mere hearsay, and taken by Krauss from the statement in the Gentleman's Magazine. He makes no reference to the Frankfurt copy in his copious notes in the Kursturkenden, and like Kloss, had no personal knowledge of any such publication. In short, there is no positive evidence at all that any such document was printed at Frankfurt on the main, but abundant negative evidence that it was not. Thus, Brother Mackey says, the first point must be abandoned. 
The second point is that the manuscript was, by command of King Henry VIII, copied by John Leland from an older document of the age of Henry VI. Now, there is not the slightest evidence that a manuscript copy of the original document was made by Leland, except what is afforded by the article in the Gentleman's Magazine, the authenticity of which is the very question in dispute. And it is a good maxim of the law that no one ought to be a witness in his own cause. Even this evidence is very insufficient, admitting that Locke was really the author of the annotations, an assertion which also needs proof, he does not say that he had seen the Leland copy, but only a copy of it, made for him by a friend, so that even at that time the Leland manuscript had not appeared, and up to this time has never been seen. Amid all the laborious researches of Brother Hugan in the British Museum, in other libraries, and in the archives of lodges, while he has discovered many valuable old records and Masonic constitutions hidden in these various places, he has failed to unearth the famous Leland manuscript. Huddesford, in his Life of Leland, it is true, made the following statement about this manuscript. It also appears that an ancient manuscript of Leland's has long remained in the Bodleian Library, unnoticed in any account of our author yet published. This tract is entitled Certain Questions with Answers to the Same Concerning the Mystery of Masonry. The original is said to be the handwriting of King Henry VI by order of His Highness King Henry VIII. He then comments upon the importance of this ancient monument of literature if its authenticity remains unquestioned. But Huddesford wrote in 1772, 19 years after the appearance of the document in the Gentleman's Magazine, which he quotes in his appendix, and from which it is evident that he has derived all the knowledge he had of the manuscript. The remarks on this subject of the unknown writer in the London Masonic Magazine already referred to are so apt and conclusive that they justify a quotation. Quote, Though Huddesford was keeper of the Ashmolean Library in the Bodleian, he does not seek to verify even the existence of the manuscript, but contents himself with, quote, it also appears, quote, that it is from the Gentleman's Magazine of 1753. He surely ought not to have put in here such a statement that an ancient manuscript of Leland has long remained in the Bodleian without inquiry or correlation. Either he knew the fact to be so, as he stated it, or he did not. But in either case, his carelessness as an editor is, to my mind, utterly inexcusable. Nothing would have been easier for him than to verify an alleged manuscript of Leland being an officer in the very collection in which it is said to exist. Still, if he did not do so, either the manuscript did exist, and he knew it, but did not think well for some reason to be more explicit about it, or he knew nothing about it at all, and by an inexcusable neglect of his editorial duty, took no pains to ascertain the truth, and simply copied others by his quasi-recognition of a professed manuscript of Leland." End quote. But it is utterly incredible that Huddesford could have known and yet concealed his knowledge of the existence of the manuscript. There is no conceivable motive that could be assigned for such concealment, and for the citation at the same time of other authority for the fact. It is therefore a fair inference that his only knowledge of the document was derived from the gentleman's magazine. There is therefore no proof whatever that Leland ever copied any older manuscript. Referring to certain obvious mistakes in the printed copy, such as Peter Gower for Pythagoras, it has been said that it is evident that the document was not printed from Leland's original transcript, but rather from a secondary copy by an unlearned writer. Huddesford adopts this view, but if he had ever seen the manuscript of Leland, he could have better formed a judgment by comparing it with the printed copy than by a mere inference that Leland could not have made such mistakes. As he did not do so, it follows that he never saw Leland's manuscript. 
The third point requiring proof is that the original manuscript of which Leland made a copy was written by King Henry VI. There is a legal rule that when a deed or writing is not produced in court and the loss of it is not reasonably accounted for, it shall be treated as if it did not exist. This is just the case of the pretended manuscript in the writing of Henry VI. No one has ever seen that manuscript. No one has ever had any knowledge of it. The fact of its ever having existed depends solely on the statement made in the gentleman's magazine that it had been copied by Leland. Of a document, quote, in the clouds, end quote, like this, whose very existence is a mere presumption built on the slightest foundation, it is absurd to predicate an opinion of the handwriting. Time enough when the manuscript is produced to inquire who wrote it. The fourth point is that the manuscript of Leland was deposited in the Bodleian Library. This has already been discussed in the argument on the first and third points. It is sufficient now to say that no such manuscript has been found in that library. The writer in the London Masonic Magazine, already mentioned, says that he communicated with the authorities of the Bodleian Library and was informed that nothing is known of it in that collection. Among the manuscripts of the British Museum are some that were once owned by Essex, an architect who lived late in the 18th century. Among these is a copy of the Leland Manuscript, evidently a copy made by Essex from the Gentleman's Magazine, or some one of the other works where it had been printed. Evidently, says Brother Mackey, because in the same collection is a copy of the Grand Mystery, transcribed by him as he had transcribed the Leland Manuscript as a curious relic. The original Leland Manuscript is nowhere to be found. The fifth point is that a copy of Leland's Manuscript was made by Mr. C and given to him by Locke. The pocket companion printed the name as Collins, upon what authority is not explained. There were only two leading men of that name who were of the same period as Locke, John Collins, the mathematician, and Anthony Collins, the skeptic. It could not have been the former who took the copy from the Ashmolean Library in 1696. He died in 1683. There is, however, a probability that the latter was meant by the writer of the preface, since he was on such relations with Locke as to be appointed one of his executors, and it is ingenious, if the manuscript or rather the printed article is a forgery, that he should be selected to perform such an act of courtesy for his friend as to copy an old manuscript. Yet there is an uncertainty about it, and it is a puzzle to be resolved why Locke should have unnecessarily used such excess caution, and given only the initial and final letters of the name of a friend occupied in the harmless employment of copying for him a manuscript in a public library. This is mysterious, and mystery is always open to suspicion. The sixth and last point is that the notes were written by Locke in 1696, and 52 years afterward printed in Frankfurt on the Main. We must add to this, because it is part of the story, that the English text, with the comments of Locke, said to have been translated into German, the question, was it translated by the unknown brother in whose desk the document was found after his death, and then retranslated into English for the use of the gentleman's magazine? It is admitted that if we cannot accept the document printed in 1753 as genuine, it must follow that the notes supposed to have been written by Locke are also spurious. The two questions are not necessarily connected. Locke may have been deceived, and believing in the manuscript presented to him by C. or Collins, if that is his name, did take the trouble, for the sake of Lady Masham, to explain the difficulties. 
But if we have shown that there is no sufficient proof, and in fact no proof at all, that there ever was such a manuscript, and therefore that Collins did not copy it, then it will necessarily follow that the pretended notes of Locke are as complete a forgery as the text to which they are attached. Now, if the com comments of Locke were genuine, why is it that after diligent search, this particular one has not been found? Locke left several manuscripts behind him. Some were published after his death by his executors, Kings and Collins, and several unpublished writers went to the possession of Lord King, who in 1829 published The Life and Correspondence of Locke. But nowhere has the Leland manuscript appeared. If John Locke's letter were authentic, says the writer already repeatedly quoted, a copy of this manuscript would remain among Mr. Locke's papers, or at Wilton House, and the original manuscript probably in the hands of this Mr. Collins, whoever he was, or in the Bodleian. But there are other circumstances of suspicion connected with the letter and notes of Locke, which really condemn their authenticity. Concluding the remarks on what he calls this old paper, Locke is made to say, It has so raised my curiosity as to induce me to enter in myself into the fraternity, which I am determined to do, if I may be admitted, the next time I go to London, and that will be shortly. Because it is known that at the date of the above letter, Locke was residing at Oates, the home of Sir Francis Masham, for whose lady he says that the notes were made, and it is also known that in the next year he made a visit to London, Oliver says that there he was initiated into masonry. There is no proof of his this initiation, nor is it important to the question of authenticity whether he was initiated or not, because if he was not, it would only show that he had given up the intention suggested in the letter. But Brother Mackey mentions the unsupported remark of Dr. Oliver to show how Masonic history has too often been written, quote, always assumptions and facts left to take care of themselves, end quote. But it is really most probable that Locke was not made a Freemason in 1697 or at any other time. If he had been, Dr. Anderson, writing the history of Freemasonry only a few years afterward, would not have failed to have entered this noted name in the list of learned scholars who had favored the fraternity. It appears, from what is admitted in the reference to this subject, that the Leland manuscript obtained by Collins from the Bodleian Library was annotated by Locke, and a letter, stating the fact, was sent with the manuscript and notes to the nobleman whose rank and title are designated by stars, a needless mystery, but who has been supposed to be the Earl of Pembroke. All this was in 1696. Then it seems to have been lost to sight until 1748, when it is suddenly found hidden away in the desk of a deceased brother in Germany. During these 52 years that it lay concealed, we hear nothing. Anderson, the Masonic historian, could not have heard of it. He does not mention it in either the editions of the Constitutions published in 1723 or in that of 1738. If anyone knew of it, if it was in existence, it would have been Anderson, and if he had seen or heard of it, he would have referred to it in his history of Freemasonry during the reign of Henry VI. He does say that according to a record in the reign of Edward IV, the charges and laws of the Freemasons have been seen and perused by our late sovereign King Henry VI, and by the lords of his most honorable council, who have allowed them and declared that they be right good and reasonable, to be holden as they have been drawn out and collected from the records of ancient times, etc. But this is no description of the Leland Manuscript, which does not consist of charges and laws, but is simply a history of the origin of Freemasonry, and a declaration of its character and objects. Yet the fact that there is said to have been something submitted by the Freemasons to Henry VI and his council was enough to suggest to the ingenious forger the idea of giving to his manuscript a date corresponding to the reign of that king. 
But, continues Brother Mackey, he overleaped the bounds of caution in giving the peculiar form to his forgery. Had he made a document similar to those ancient constitutions, many genuine manuscripts which are extant to the discovery of the fraud would have been much more difficult. We are told the manuscript, having been found in the desk of this unknown deceased brother, is forthwith published at Frankfurt, Germany, in a pamphlet of twelve pages and in the German language. Here again there are questions to be asked which cannot be answered. Was the letter of Locke, including, of course, the catechism of the Leland manuscript, found in the desk of the unknown brother, the original document, or was it only a copy? If the latter had it, been copied in English by the brother or translated by him into German? If not translated by him, by whom was it translated? Was the pamphlet printed in Frankfurt merely a German translation, or did it also contain, in parallel columns, the English original, as Krauss has printed the English documents in his Kunstgarten, and, as in fact, he has printed this very document? These are questions of a very great importance in determining the value and authenticity of the Frankfurt pamphlet, yet not one of them can be answered, simply because that pamphlet has never been found, nor is it known that anyone has ever even seen it. The pamphlet makes its appearance five years later in England and in an English translation in the Gentleman's Magazine for September 15, 1753. Nobody can tell, or at least nobody has told, how it got there, who brought it over, who translated it from the German, how it happened that the ancient language of the text and the style of Locke have been preserved. These are facts necessary to be known in any investigation of the question of authenticity, and yet over them all a suspicious silence broods. Until this silence is lifted and these questions answered by the gain of new knowledge, which it can hardly now be expected will be obtained, the stain of doubt or even fraud must remain upon the document. Brother Mackey further claims that the discoverer of a genuine manuscript would have been more clear and plain in his details. As to internal evidence, there is difficulty in applying the standards of criticism which identify the age of the manuscript by its style. Throwing aside any consideration of the Frankfurt pamphlet on account of the impossibility of explaining the question of translation and admitting for the time that Locke did really annotate a copy of a manuscript then in the Bodleian Library, which copy was made for him by his friend Collins, how with this admission will the case stand? In Locke's letter, accepting it as such, he says, quote, The manuscript of which this is a copy appears to be about 160 years old, end quote. As the date of Locke's letter is 1696, this estimate would bring us to 1536, or the 31st year of the reign of Henry VIII. Locke could get this knowledge of this fact only in two ways, from the date given in the manuscript, or from its style and language as belonging in his opinion to that period. If he derived his information from the date found at the head of the manuscript, that knowledge would be of no value because it is the very question at issue. The writer of a forged document would affix to it the date necessary to carry out his fraud, which of course would be no proof of genuineness. But if Locke judged from the style, then it must be said that, though a great author, he never had any reputation as an expert in the judgment of old records. Of this we have a proof here, for the language of the Leland manuscript is not of the period in which Leland lived. Brother Mackey points out that the investigator may easily satisfy himself of this by comparing Leland's genuine works or the Cranmer Bible of the same date. But it may be said that Locke judged of the date not by the style, but by the date of the manuscript itself. This is probably true because he adds, quote, Yet, as your lordship will observe by the title, it itself is a copy of one of yet more ancient by about a hundred years, for the original is said to have been in the handwriting of King Henry VI, end quote. Locke then judged by the title a very insufficient proof, 
So Locke seems to have thought, for he limits the positiveness of the assertion by the qualifying phrase, it is said. If we accept this for what it's worth, the claim will be that the original manuscript was written in the reign of Henry VI, or about the middle of the 15th century. Here again, the language is not of that period. The New English, as it is called, was then taking that purer form, which a century and a half later was shown in the vigorous style of Cawley. We find no such out-of-date terms as those of this document in the Repressor of Overmuch Blaming of the Clergy of the same reign, about 1450, by Bishop Peacock, nor in the Earl of Warwick's petition to Duke Humphrey in 1432, nor in any of the other writings of that period. It is not surprising, therefore, that the glossary or list of quaint words used in the document, by which from internal evidence we could fix its date, has, according to Brother Woodford, always been looked upon with much suspicion by experts. Brother Mackey says the style is a rather clumsy imitation of that of Sir John Mandeville, whose Voyage and Travel was written in 1356, a century before the date set by the Leland Manuscript. An edition of this book was published at London in 1725. It was therefore within reach of the writer of the Leland document. He was aware of the necessity of giving an air of antiquity to his forgery, and yet not sufficiently informed to know the rapid strides that had been taking place in the progress of the language between the time of Mandeville and the middle of the reign of Henry VI. Brother Mackey goes on to say the forger adopted to the best of his poor ability the words of that most easily deceived of all travelers, supposing that it would fit well into the period he had selected for the date of his fraud. His ignorance of language progress is by Brother Mackey held to be conclusive. He, in fact, endorses the opinion of Hallowell Phillips that it is but a clumsy attempt at deception and quite a parallel to the recently discovered one of the first English Mercury. Brother Mackey concludes by saying, quote, But the strangest thing in this whole affair is that so many men of learning should have permitted themselves to become the dupes of so bungling an impostor, end quote. Brother Robert F. Gould says that, quote, all authorities except Fort concur in regarding this mysterious document as an impudent forgery. The conclusion I have myself arrived at is that the catechism must have been drawn up at some period subsequent to the publication of Dr. Anderson's Constitutions, and I think it not pro improbable that the memoir of Ashmole, given in the Biography Britannica, 1747, may have suggested the idea of practicing on the credul credulity of the Freemasons, end quote. A like opinion is given in his concise history of Freemasonry. Brother George F. Fort devotes one chapter to a study of the matter and says, A careful, in this quote, a careful examination of the pamphlet, republished by Krauss, convinces me that it is genuine and entitled to full credence. Who the author was is uncertain, but it presents all the appearance, from the phraseology and antique orthography, at least, of having been written as early as the middle of the 15th century. The traditions of the fraternity are also as accurately transmitted by this manuscript as by those which Masonic historians have accepted to be genuine. Among other legends which it contains is one that the Venetians brought Freemasonry from the East. How closely this corresponds with the actual transmission of architectural art to the West rapidly appears. Whoever wrote the document in question was profoundly learned in the secrets possessed by the craft." End quote. Brother George Fleming Moore also took vigorous exception to the methods formerly employed to determine the standing of the document. He says, quote, We are not in possession of any new facts which would justify a reversal of this judgment, that of Brother Gould and the other opponents. But the data on which the original sentence of condemnation was based seems wholly inadequate. Many of the arguments are trivial and puerile in the extreme, and some of them the result of prejudice against the high degrees, end quote. 
After a review of the authorities, Brother Moore points out, quote, This is a day when even our sacred books are made the target of destructive criticism. It is a fad, and while we cannot say the Leland Manuscript is genuine, we do say that most arguments against it are puerile, trivial, merely negative, or perhaps the result of prejudice. End quote. Brother Robert F. Gold, on further consideration, admitted that the reasons were conclusive for a rehearing of the case and also said that, quote, if the manuscript can be proved or even reasonably assumed to be a genuine one, then the words of Fort, Woodford, Albert Pike, and George F. Moore with respect to the value of the text are calculated to deeply impress the minds of all the serious and unprejudiced students of the craft, end quote. Brother Gold once held that there was no trace of any connection of Henry VI and the craft, but later he states that, quote, as will be seen to the argument of anonymity, which has been advanced by the opponents of Locke manuscript, I attach no weight at all, and I shall now turn to that legendary patron of our society, King Henry VI, whose alleged connection with the Freemasons in a traditionary or in any other way was long disputed, and therefore served to accentuate, as it were, the displeasure of these critics by whom the claim advanced on behalf of that monarch in the Locke manuscript to figure as a protector of the craft was rejected with contumely, end quote. The discovery, however, of that particular type of the manuscript constitutions, of which the William Watson manuscript is a leading exemplar, has resulted in the full restoration of King Henry VI to the position of a legendary Masonic dignitary, and one of the most learned craftsmen of our own time, from whom I never venture to differ save with humility. Dr. W. Begeman of Berlin is firmly convinced that certain charges and regulations of the Masons were actually sanctioned and approved by King Henry VI of the name. At present, the manuscript is not in much better standing owing to the following, quote, the philologist and the forger. The forger of literary and historical documents has many pitfalls in his path, but his fall is often long delayed. A forgery which many years has found supporters is a Masonic treatise entitled Certain Questions Concerning Masonry, written by King Henry VI and copied by me, John Leyland, published in the Gentleman's Magazine, 1753, but stated to be a reprint of Ein Brief von Herrn Johann Locke, Frankfurt, 1748, where it is said that the original manuscript is in the Bodleian Library. No such manuscript, however, has ever come to light, and Mr. Maiden, in his summary catalog, refers to it as mythical. A student of masonry recently made a special visit to Oxford with a view to a further search for the treatise, because, as he said, Masonically, this is by no means as universally regarded as spurious as it was some thirty or so years ago. Needless to say, he did not succeed where Mr. Maiden had failed, but the authenticity of the text was still undecided. It occurred to a member of the staff to ask Mr. Onions, one of the editors of the New English Dictionary, whether the treatise could possibly have been written as early as 1460. Mr. Onions kindly examined the text and almost immediately denounced it as spurious on the account of the occurrence of the word K-Y-M-I-S-T-R-E, chemistry, which is not found in English until about the year 1600, and which did not become common until the middle of the 17th century. By such slips is the forger betrayed. End quote. S.G. in the Bodleian Quarterly Record, Volume 3, Number 26, Page 27. See also the article by W. John Songhurst, Ars Quator Coronatum, Volume 32, Part 2, Page 142, from 1919. And that ends the chapter on the Leland Manuscript, basically with uh, multiple ways of saying that this document never existed 
and that the if it did, the copies were forgeries. So rather interesting. We we had the first book talked a lot about and compared this for some of the mysteries and some of the history of masonry, and then we get to chapter 44, and then they basically say that that entire document's a forgery anyways. So with that, thanks for listening, and we'll pick up next week with chapter 45, and that moves us out of the prehistoric masonry section of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry to the history of Freemasonry. So we go from prehistoric masonry to the history of Freemasonry, starting with chapter 45. So thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.